Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to The Rap Report with your host, Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Welcome to The Rap Report. This is your host, Andrew Rappaport, and this is take two. We, uh, we, I got to let you folks know, we had an outstanding podcast, Bud, Andrew Smith, and I answering some questions that some of you have asked. It was great when we were talking to one another, but it wasn't so great when we re-listened to the audio. <laughs> and so we're, we're trying to reproduce that, but now we're down a man. Uh, we're, it's just Andrew Smith and I, and we're actually in person. I, I've been down at, at your church preaching. And uh, so let's, uh, we'll start by having you introduce yourself again. And uh, now, unlike last time where we talked about that I was going to be coming to your church to preach, we, you can actually say how bad I did. But, <laughs> but uh, Bud's not here with us. Uh, he couldn't, couldn't make it, but we're, we're actually recording in video. The audio may not be as good, folks, uh, because, well, we don't have our full setup. But we'll see how that works. So, Andrew Smith, welcome to the Rap Report again. You're, this is, I think, number three you've been on. And uh, second time dealing with, the, with this one topic of whether to wear masks or not, because we're answering a question that came in from the episode you were on. But just introduce yourself to the audience and anything you want to share and maybe the fact that you started podcasting again, finally. Yep, uh, I'm Andrew Smith, and I pastor Christ Reformed Community Church uh, here in St. Augustine, Florida. And uh, just blessed to be part of a, a congregation that loves good preaching and and likes to hear people like Andrew Rappaport bring the Word of God as he did from Mark chapter 6, and just gave a wonderful message on the importance of proclaiming the Gospel and depending upon the Lord, especially in these times that we live in, Andrew. I think your message was, was very apt and very appropriate, and uh, the Spirit of God, I'm very confident, used uh, that message as he always uses the preaching of the Word of God to sanctify the saints, to encourage the saints, to rebuke the saints, and um, and uh, we're glad that we're sitting in a new facility here for our church to do to do this podcast. And um, your listeners may not know, but you were the one that really strongly encouraged me to pursue uh, 
podcasting. I'd actually already started a podcast when I met you, but I had shared it with you because I wanted to get your, your feedback on it since you're the resident expert in podcasting. So you want to be a podcaster is the name of your, your one of your podcasts. And um, so Andrew really encouraged me to continue pressing forward. And then the last time when we recorded this, and it didn't record right. Uh, you were giving me a hard time because I hadn't Who, done me? a yeah because I hadn't done a podcast in a while. So I did a podcast, my first one in several weeks, uh, this past Friday, and I dedicated it to Bud and Andrew. Uh, several weeks or several months? Maybe maybe months. Okay. So we we got some questions in from you folks. And again, if you want to send some questions in, info at strivingforeternity.org. Info at strivingforeternity.org. Now, this is a longer question, this first one. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on this than some of the others because there's a lot to this one. So let me read the question that came in. Dear Andrew and Bud, I never listened to your podcast, The Rap Report, but I ended up following you, Mr. Rappaport, on Parlor, which, by the way, folks, you can follow me at Andrew Rappaport on Parlor. Uh, so I uh, started following you, Mr. Rappaport, on Parlor, and saw the recent post about your podcast episode on masks, posted November 8th. Thank you so much. You said much of what I've been saying and thinking on the issue and was encouraged to hear the others saying the same things. Over the past few months, my dad and I have been dealing with the elders at our church here, and I'm not going to name where, but in Ohio. They have taken the position that we as a church are required to wear masks. They believe that Governor DeWine's mandate is law. The foundational basis for obeying this mandate is that they believe it is a law, which, according to a lawyer I know and what I have read about, uh, in our state constitution, it is not law and is actually unconstitutional. But And according to their interpretation of Romans 13, 1 and 2, submit to the ruling authorities, we must obey. Their secondary and more often used argument, until pushed upon, they revert back to the law argument if pushed, is we need to love our neighbor and defer to the conscience of our brother or sisters. I see that as a consistency issue by going back and forth between the two arguments. If one is challenged, but maybe it's not just me. On the basic level, they believe that if we do not submit in wearing masks for a, as long as the mandate is in place, we are disobeying God's law. The church needs to submit as long as we are not told to sin, and if we don't wear a mask at church, we will be excommunicated or defellowshipped. We had to push on that as well because they assumed everyone would just go along and they hadn't thought through the consequences until I up front asked them, what will you do if I come to church without a mask? And they said they hadn't thought that far. We offered a small compromise like sitting off of the auditorium by ourselves and arriving and leaving the side door with no fellowship, but they wouldn't take that offering. Since this has been happening, I have not been back for several months now and have been visiting other churches so that I do not forsake the assembling of myself. My dad took the position that when he, we would come to worship, the veil was taken away, so the word is open and read and began beginning of the service, the mask comes off. And he was willing to compromise to put it back on when the service was over. But even that was looked 
it was not looked kindly on upon by the elders. But mainly I wonder if I would possibly have to respond to the argument. Oh, sorry. But mainly I wondered if you all would possibly have a response to the argument that is a violation of God's law to wear a mask. I, I'll listen again to the, your podcast episode, but I don't know if you'll address that argument specifically. Don't worry, Seth. We're doing it now. Uh, and leave, as to leaving the church, I'm not leaving only and that's all in caps, only because of this issue. There have been other issues, there have been other reasons that have been building over the past couple of years, and much have greatly incensuated in the past seven or so months because of the reaction to COVID and because of the George Floyd incident, the lack of fellowship nods towards social justice. I love this church. We have attended it for almost 20 years. I love the people. It is with the elders that we have this argument. So it is. it has been extremely difficult to not be able to attend or to be forced to wear a mask if we do attend or face the consequences of disfellowship. I do know others who dislike the mandate in the church, but we seem to be the only ones that have actually stated our position and stood to it. I don't even think the other believers there know why they ha why we haven't been there. Thanks so much again for your work on this podcast, Seth. So, Andrew, let me start with you and let you start off with, there's a lot here. We know because we already recorded a whole lot. I think we gave a 45-minute response to this before. But let's see how much we can maybe recreate or come up with new. What, what is your response to Seth? Yeah, I, I don't remember what, everything that we talked about last time. Um, but I do remember the email, and I do remember the first thing that, that I thought of was we need to begin with the question, um, what exactly is the goal of church discipline? I mean, because the elders in this particular church, who I have no reason to believe um, anything other than the fact that they mean well, if they're true brothers in Christ and true Christians, they, they understand the Bible, I'm assuming. They understand their stewardship and their responsibility, and they're trying to take that seriously. Um, and that can be commended, I think, in principle. Um, but you need to be very, very careful when you begin to throw around terms like church discipline and excommunication. Um, when you read Matthew chapter 18, and I actually have it open right here before me, um, it's very clear in this passage that the goal of church discipline is the restoration of a brother or sister who has been caught in a trespass, and they have been confronted not just by one person, not just by two, not just by three, but the entire congregation along with the elders. So to, to jump to a conclusion that we need to excommunicate anyone who does not follow our extra-biblical policies on wearing a mask, when they have already admitted that they haven't thought through the issue entirely, tells me they've also not thought through what the goal and purpose of church discipline is, which is to verify a, a sin that has clearly been committed, that can be publicly verified, testimony given toward, and is an absolutely last resort option for a church. So something is troubling to me when we're talking about excommunication so flippantly. And, and I think that was the first thing that, I, that, I, that hit me when I read the email. Um, the other passage that came to mind was 1 Peter 5, where it says you should not um, have a domineering spirit over those allotted to your charge, Peter, as he's exhorting the elders, the shepherds of the church. 
So, um, and when you're dealing with mask mandates and you're dealing with coronavirus, you're dealing with a whole set of factors that people are not in full agreement on. There, there, there is seemingly no unanimity on virtually all of these issues from politicians to medical people to religious leaders to people in the community. So this is not a church discipline issue because a church discipline issue is a black and white issue. And I think that needs to be said from the beginning. And then I think some of the things that you had brought up last time, which I want you to obviously elaborate on if you can remember, was with respect to Romans 13 and whether or not this is even a violation of Romans 13 because in some ways that's that, that I'm assuming that would be the starting place for these elders saying that Romans 13 is being violated and I don't even think that can be proven yeah yeah because I mean part of what we have here is the the idea that we have across the country is we have these governors who are just saying we're making a mandate we're decreeing and yet that's actually not a law. He, he says he went to a lawyer, he has lawyers and his understanding of the Constitution, and he's right. The legislature is who puts law in place. So the legislature legislates, the executive branch executes, and the courts or the, the legal system is to interpret the law. So they interpret it and the law and, and compare to what the law is from the Constitution, which is where we started with, and then from the legislatures of the states that would put it into law. For example, many people think that abortion is a law in this land. It is not. It is a court interpretation. The legislature could legalize abortion by voting on it. Of course, they don't, which tells you what they know of the views of the America, because they know they, they don't want to have to actually vote on that, because they know they would probably be voted out next election. So the issue is that Governor DeWine has put out an executive order, which I don't even know if he did that. Some of the governors are just making mandates. They're not actually putting executive orders even. And so the first question I'd have to look at is, did he actually do an executive order or not? If he didn't, as most of these governors are not, they're just making a mandate. They're just saying publicly, you must wear a mask. That's not a law at all then. And I believe that that's what uh, Governor DeWine did. He's just decreeing without even signing it into as an executive order. But even an executive order is not a law. An executive order is the executive order, how they're going to carry things out. But it is then up to the legislature to either adopt it as law or to veto it. Or they can leave it alone and that's how he will execute things. But it's not law. Now, some might say, well, we're, you're, being, you're playing semantics. Well, this becomes important when it comes to this sort of issue where you're threatening with church discipline. Because if you're threatening someone with church discipline and you're saying, well, this is a Romans 13 issue, well, Romans 13, if it's not actually a law, then it's not a Romans 13 issue. And if it's unconstitutional, as many of these mandates have been, you know, I don't remember if we've mentioned this last time, but you know, so I have a, a condition where if I wear a mask, I can only go about 15 to 30 minutes before I'm ready to pass out. Okay, I have asthma and different things that, you know, my blood oxygen level just can't handle dropping too low. And so when they make me wear a mask like flying out here, you know, I have to be watching my oxygenization levels to make sure they don't drop. And so there are some people that wearing a mask is actually the worst thing you could do for them. It's unhealthy for them. And that's actually the reason they can't make it law. That's actually the reason it would be unconstitutional because for some people it would put their health at risk. 
So you, you, you're actually not supposed to pass bills or laws that would put people's health at risk. Okay, that's that's where I think what you're saying is the the Matthew 18 comes into a sin and someone who's unrepentant on sin. But you also picked up on the key, which most people forget. Church discipline is not for punishment; it's for restoration. Well, how do you restore someone that's not actually like if it's questionable that they're in sin or not? And I think this one is because we, we start by looking at the law issue and say, is it actually is it actually a law, and does Romans 13 actually fit? Now, if that's a gray issue, if there's different interpretations on whether this is law or not, then you cannot say it's a sin. If it's not a sin, you can't say that they are going to be excommunicated out of the church. And to jump to that, and we'll get to this when we get to maybe more on church discipline, is you know what other sins do you discipline out for? But the, the, the thing of it being a law or not, I think, is, is, a, gray, is a gray issue. I totally agree. Yeah, so talk more about it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the irony of all of this, and, and you know, the mask, um, of course, we know that uh, the Greek word for hypocrite um, is derived from, you know, wearing a mask, wearing a mask and, and, and this dramatic sort of display, you know, before the people. And I really think that the mask has become a symbol of a spiritual superiority and the idea that you're not loving your neighbor and you're not loving your brother as you ought to if you don't. And um, I have I have issue. I take issue with that. Um, the other irony that, that I think is in the midst of this is that here you have elders of a local church who are called to be, uh, for lack of a, of a better term, spiritual physicians in the sense that they bring the Word of God to bear upon the people of God for spiritual healing, hope, those sorts of things as we preach the gospel, the healing balm of the gospel forgives. We are instruments that the Lord uses. and um, But they're not being spiritual physicians. They're trying to be physical physicians. They're trying to do the role of of medical people, which is not their field and it's not their calling. And the purpose of church discipline is not physical protection. It is spiritual protection. And so I am far more concerned about the spiritual protection of my people than the physical protection of my people. Now that doesn't mean I don't visit hospitals and pray over people when they're sick and and when they're sick unto death and I have a responsibility to do that. I do do that. I sympathize with that. But my primary responsibility is to be a defender of the Word of God, to be a promoter of truth. And that means truth in all realms. All truth is God's truth. So if a governor is lying or being dishonest or leading people astray for nefarious purposes, if I even think that is a possibility, the last thing that I want to do is have some sort of mask mandate in my church uh, because I bought into whatever's behind this narrative and then use the Bible for my own convenience to prop up that falsehood and weaponize church discipline against the sheep of God. That's not protecting them. But it has the appearance of physical protection and love for neighbor. And I'm not saying that the, the elders of this particular church um, are evil to the core and that, that, that they, they, they know what they're doing 100% and they're, they're, they're um, agents of Satan. That's not what I'm saying. But, but with the responsibility of being an elder comes a great stewardship and you will give an account to God, the shepherd of all souls. And so I just fundamentally have an issue with um, using, weaponizing church discipline in this fashion, which 
as you said, cannot you, you, you verify whether or not a sin is committed based upon whether or not it is a violation of the law of God. And here you have no clear violation of the law of the Bible or the law of the land. Therefore, church discipline does not apply. Yeah, and as we, we said on a previous podcast when Dr. Special was on talking masks and we're talking the science of it, the, the whole issue is there is debate in the scientific community over this whole thing of the, what's the best way to he- take care of this. And the fact is, is that when we have major tech companies that are suppressing some of the science put out by scientists, put out by people that are experts in their field because they don't like the conclusion, that should scare us. I mean, the, the simple reality is, is that a coronavirus on average is about 0.1 microns. The masks, like you take the N95 masks that are the most protective, is going to be about 0.3 to 0.4 microns. So you're even with that, it's going to block much of it, but it's not going to block all of it. You know, you're going to have for every four, you know, cells that come out of a coronavirus, you know, two or three of them are going to make it through. But the, the interestingly, flying out here, I cannot wear an N95 mask on the plane. I can't wear a filtered mask on the plane. They actually tell me the reason is is because that protects you, not other people. And I'm like, well, if, if I'm reducing the amount of coronavirus cells that could come out of the mask, but I get rid of all of them that come in, like that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, I, I'm protecting myself as good. And if everyone was wearing an N95 mask, we wouldn't have to worry about protecting others because we'd all be protected. But they say, no, you can't wear that. You have to wear this cloth mask that, or, or, the, or the surgical mask that you see everyone wearing, these disposable masks, which only have the surgical masks are about 0.7 microns of, of, that can get through. That, so anything smaller than 0.7 is going gonna, is gonna to pass through there. But some of the cloth masks that people have are, are 1.4. So you, you end up seeing that these masks everyone's wearing is 0.7 to 1.4 microns of whole sizes and of coronaviruses 0.1. So in other words, on most of the masks most people are wearing, you, you speak, cough, sneeze, whatever, and if you're coughing and sneezing, it's going to be pushing it even more. But just in speaking, 10 out of, you know, 9 out of 10 cells are getting through easily. Some, in some cases, you know, you're getting 15 out of 20 cells getting out. So it's not really protecting against it. And this is just the science of it. Now, there's debate on that. So is the mask really helping? Well, there's, you know, you look at this and and because of the way these mandates are being done, we as Christians stand up for truth. We have to say, well, wait a minute. Are we furthering a lie in wearing the masks? Because they're using it to control people. And this is the very thing what Christians should stand up. I mean, did we see Jesus going when when the, the Jewish leaders would say, oh, no, you, you, if, if you're, in, like in the, I'm thinking through the Beatitudes where he, he's correcting all the things, if you, can, you can love your neighbor but hate your enemies. That, he say, oh, you know what, that's okay. You just hate your enemy because that's what everyone else was saying. No, he stood up to the lie and corrected it. Mm-hmm. Now, do we have to correct it by saying, well, I'm, I'm going to put my foot down? Well, there may be a time you have to do some like, stuff like that with tyranny, but the reality is, is, when we have masks, when we sit there and say that someone's going to create a mandate that could put other people's risk or conscience in jeopardy, that, that becomes a different issue. One of the other things, other than Romans 13, that, that Seth said his elders switched to, is deferring to the weaker brother. Yeah. And so I think, again, I, I think they're m- maybe misapplying some scriptures here, but let's talk about the Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 14, with this whole idea of church liberty, what is the argument 
of the offering meat or eating meat offered unto idols. What do we learn from that? And does that do you think, Andrew, that this actually applies? And I, I guess I guess for people who are listening, this is Pastor Andrew Smith versus Pastor Andrew Rappaport. So just go with I don't know. Bud usually just calls us Smith and Rappaport, and we could distinguish. Regular hearers of of this may know my voice, and but so so Pastor Andrew Smith. What, I mean, does this apply properly? Uh, this idea of deferring to your brother's conscience. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question, um, and I'm not going to say that there is is absolutely zero application um, of Romans 14 to all that we're facing today with these issues. Um, but again, I think it is a very slippery slope, and it can be a, a trap that um, you can fall into in this sense. And that is when you're dealing with issues of Christian liberty, you're dealing with things for lack of a better, a better term that are, you know, quote-unquote gray areas, um, areas of the conscience, areas that are internal, areas that are unique perhaps to, to each Christian regarding what affects one Christian's conscience and what affects another Christian's conscience. So again, we're moving further away, if I can use this language, from the law of God. And the further you move away from the law of God to begin making arguments and using proof texts like Romans 14 to justify um, you know, deferring to a, a quote-unquote weaker brother, again, you're right back into that sphere of subjectivity where it's very difficult to measure um, how this needs to be applied and, with, and, with, and, 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 and how you exactly would defer to a weaker brother. Um, and also, how do you defer to a weaker brother? That's an individual situation. How can you force a whole congregation to defer to a weaker brother? That doesn't seem to be the context that Paul's speaking about. He's talking about in your interpersonal relationships with one another, not a standard set by a church where the elders determine how you defer to a, to, to a quote-unquote weaker brother. So again, I think you enter again the realm of subjectivity. I think you distort Romans 14 when you begin using that argument. Um, and the other point that I wanted to bring up with regard to church discipline um, is the irony of, again, there's so many ironies in this, but you want to, you're threatening to excommunicate a brother in Christ who is trying to faithfully attend the corporate worship of God's people, which, by the way, is a command in the Bible. So it's part of God's law, and he's willing to compromise. Um, But are you also willing to maybe discipline people out of the church who are using the virus as a reason not to fellowship with God's people and cover up their sin? Are you going the extra mile to confront error there? And I don't know the answers to those questions, but I think that there there is such a, a lack of consistency in the way people approach these subjects um, that give me great calls for concern. We're called to be thinking Christians. And it just, it just seems like we live, Andrew, in the period of church history where no one wants to think. They just listen and react. And, they, and it's emotional. Yeah, they, they just want to feel their way through things. I mean, when we think about Romans 14, the, the issue there is you have, you, you have 
the instructions from Paul saying, okay, you, you have a, a Christian brother who just came out of paganism, and in paganism they'd, ha- they'd offer this meat that's unto idols. But those that would offer it, they, they, they don't want to just throw it away and, and be wasteful. They can make some money. So they offer they sell it on the market as meat offered unto idols, and people that don't care about the idols go buy it at a cheaper price because it's worth less because not everyone will buy it. So here you go to someone's house and someone realizes that it's meat that's been offered unto the idols. They, they're new and they have a, their conscience is telling them that's a wrong thing to do, but you know it's nothing. The guy who bought the meat knows it's nothing. He got a good price. And the question, this is actually throws many people, that because they, the argument so many people do is, you know, if you have a choice between offending a Christian brother or offending an unbeliever, they would think that you don't offend the unbeliever, so you have a chance to share the gospel with them. But what Paul says is, no, offend the unbeliever, your brother is more important. So he says, because of your brother's conscience, don't eat the meat. But the, the mistake, I think, in the thinking here that the elders have is as if, well, you defer to the weaker brother and leave him there. That's not the understanding of Paul. He says you don't cause someone to sin against their conscience, but here's the issue. If these people think wearing a mask is a law, then let them wear the mask. That would be not causing them to sin against their conscience. This man, Seth, and his father believe that wearing a mask is a sin against his conscience. They're not deferring to him. Now, if they're saying that he's the weaker brother, then they should defer to him, right? But if they're saying the whole congregation is weaker, which actually is not what they're saying, they're actually really not holding to that in its context because they'd be having to say that the whole church feels it's weaker, but you can't mandate to them that they're weaker, right? They have to feel that it's a sin against their conscience, and yet the elders are just saying this. So I don't think that that backup that they have to defer to the conscience really works because this is a thing where when we defer to the weaker brother's conscience, we don't leave the weaker brother there. If the elders actually believe that this is for the weaker brother, then they should be teaching the weaker brother to be a more mature believer, not leaving them in a state of weakness. And I think that's where that argument really doesn't fit in. Now, the, the, they've tried to make some concessions, and the fact that the elders are unwilling to compromise on two different types of concessions, and yet they're saying it's they're appealing to the conscience, or shows that they're not willing to compromise and kind of give on, on their conscience, who says, I don't want to wear a mask for, for whatever reasons, maybe even health reasons. So, I mean, I would have an issue if I come into that church and they're telling me you have to wear a mask for two-hour service. I would say, I can't do that unless you'd like to call the ambulance, right? That will be a problem. And so what you have here with the church discipline, and we've been hitting on this because this is really, I think, it's the thread, it's the billy club almost that they're holding over this man and his father, is you will do this or else. Now, when we think of church discipline, I, I just have to go to the question you kind of brought up already. What else do they discipline for? I mean, I would like to ask, and this might be a question that Seth can ask, but it's a question I would ask if I was in the place, is can you show me where you have disciplined people out for violating the speed limit? And they're going to go, well, we, we don't know who violates the speed limit. We could tell if you're not wearing the mask. But, it, but if someone comes to the church and says that they break the speed limit, it just they're, they're talking in a Bible study, and they mention that, is the church going to start practicing church discipline on them? What if they cheat on their taxes a little bit? What, 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 think of all the other laws that are out there, are they taking all of those, or is this the first time the church has taken a stance that we're going to apply Romans 13, and we're going to state that we're going to put you out of the church? If they have no history of doing this with any other governmental law, and they're going to do it on one that mm, is kind of quasi, whether it's actually a law, I, I think that you, as elders, right, as pastors, we're the shepherd of the flock. And I think 
that the elders end up losing credibility with the congregation when they do that because they're they're no longer shepherding they're demanding they're now they're now what the scriptures would say is lording it over the flock and i think that becomes even more of a potential problem there um so let's just hone in on on some of the areas of again why we see the church discipline being misused here as a billy club or as a threat instead of as restoration. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because it's been a problem throughout church history going all the way back to the Old Testament um, when time and time and time again, what does God judge Israel for? Why does God take his people into exile? And one of the accusations that are brought against God's people through the prophets um, is the accusation of basically taking advantage of the people. And who takes advantage of the people? Um, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They take advantage of the people. The leaders take advantage of the people. And what you're seeing in our own day is just what is what is obviously consistent with human nature and with total depravity. Um, and that is that that leadership tends to be abusive when there is not the accountability of of scripture. And obviously the, the most of the secular leaders in in our society today are not Christians by any stretch of the imagination. Um and quite frankly many leaders in the church probably aren't Christians. Um and so you have basically a duplication of what was happening in the Old Testament. You have um church leaders copying off of um "Quote unquote politicians." So you have what's what's happening is abusive leadership, prophets, priests, kings, um, and and it's just this sort of um, merry-go-round of um, not understanding what it means to be a leader according to the scriptures. I really believe that part of this um, is the judgment of God on this country. Um, judgment begins with the household of God. And I think that um, it is not an accident that someone wrote in to your show um, with a question regarding his elders and how these elders are responding to this. And I would say judgment begins with the household of God. And when you have, when you have um, corrupt leadership in the church and you have uh, corrupt leaders over a nation, time and time and time again, God judges those nations. He judged Israel for that. There's nothing new under the sun. And what we're witnessing here, I don't think, is really anything unique um, to church history. It's unique to us. You know, it's unique to our context and our culture. Um, but it's the same God. People operate the same way. And when you, when you don't have Scripture as true accountability, properly interpreting it, and you know this well because you, you emphasize hermeneutics so much, that's what the church needs today. The church needs peop- needs leaders in the church who understand what the scriptures say. Yeah, and you know one of the other elements of what he brought in with he said he's not leaving. He doesn't want to leave the church and if he does leave it's it's not just over the mask thing. There's been other things building over the past years but more the last 7 months where it seems that this church has given in he he gave hint to maybe they're giving in on some of the social justice issues. And so so it seems that this church leaders may have already kind of given into the world's thinking and 
the issues that we have with the lockdowns and whether church should open, George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter. And it seems that there may be some other issues going on. So the, the masks may just be more of the same virtual signaling that the world is doing. And they're, they want to enforce that the same way the world wants to enforce it. So I, th- I think some aspect is this may be kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back for, for Seth. But the thing that we see is that these churches need to stand up for truth, not cave in just because, well, the whole world is, is saying it's right. So, the whole, so what if the whole world said, the whole world is saying that Christ is not God. Are you going to give that up next? I mean, the whole world is saying we should accept homosexuality. Are we going to say, well, then throw out the Bible and just accept homosexuality? Like, the, the, these are leaders. Leaders are supposed to, I know this is going to sound crazy, leaders are supposed to lead, right? They're not supposed to follow. They're supposed to have convictions. In fact, that's kind of the requirements. Of you. When you see First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, most people think that the qualifications of a pastor are only you know, First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where it talks about those couple qualifications of a pastor. But if you read those three books, you see a whole lot more qualifications that Paul is saying, like teaching sound doctrine, confronting false doctrine. And we are to do that as pastors, not just teach the truth, but teach against error. If you're sitting there and caving in on the world on social justice, and you're going to cave in and take the world's definition of these things, are you really standing up against error and teaching the truth? And if if there's some of that going on, that may be even more reason he's having concern and to say, well, you know, the mask issue is just the latest. But if you're gonna if you're gonna put me out of the church because of my conviction, you're gonna cause me to sin against my own conscience because you're going to dictate what my conscience should be, then you're in violation of the Scripture, Pastor. (laughs) Okay, maybe that's not the best way to say it to your pastor, but (laughs) that's the concept. So, I mean, what are your thoughts with that, Andrew? Andrew Smith? Yeah, no, I think that's excellent. I've preached through 2 Timothy. I've preached through Titus. I've preached a lot in 1 Timothy. I'm not sure I've preached from beginning to end through 1 Timothy yet, but um, as I read through the pastoral epistles, um, one of the things that come up constantly, as you said, was the significance of teaching sound doctrine and refuting error and recognizing there will be false teachers in the church. And um, over and over and over and over again, that's the clarion call for God's leaders, God, God's preachers, God's elders. And so you're not going to be a good leader if you don't have conviction. The only way you can have conviction is if you know the Bible, <laughs> you know, you know the truth of God's word. So, yeah, I, I just we, we live in an era where people don't operate according to conviction. They operate according to convenience. They don't operate according to principle. They operate according to pragmatism. They're not being led by Christ. They're being led by the culture. And so I, I don't want to be part of a church where the elders are submitting to the culture rather than submitting to Christ, and then they're turning around and telling me that I need to submit to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's probably not going to work for me. Yeah, and I mean, I think that as we look at this, you know, one of the things that you have to realize is we're going to come into a time of persecution. We're going to come into a time where where we're seeing it in our culture where where they're going to outlaw Christianity. They're going to hate Christianity. What are you going to do then? If you've already given in to the world, if you're following the world's lead, are you just going to give up Christianity? Because that's what a lot of these these pastors are going to have to do. They're going to have to just give up their convictions altogether. Let, let's go to another question that we had gotten into the to ministry. This was the question. Need some help, brothers. How would you explain to a teenage girl that believes that 
quote, love is love, unquote, you can't help who you fall in love with, even if it's someone of the same sex. Now, l- let me get your response to that first. I, you already know my answer because you heard it the first time we recorded. <laughs> but what do you say to a teenage girl that's saying love is love and you can't help who you fall in love with? Well, I, I actually would agree with part of that statement because I believe in a doctrine referred to as total depravity. And so I absolutely agree that the heart is, is desperately wicked above all things. Who can, who, who can even understand, Jeremiah says, the depth of the evil um, and depravity of man's heart? So in one sense, yes, sinners can't help themselves. They follow after sin. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. And that's why the Lord laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot um, obey God's law. We are hopeless, helpless, depraved, dead in our sins and trespasses. And, um, but the good news is that the Lord can redeem people from homosexuality. The Lord can take those desires away. The Lord can curb those desires. The Lord can completely remove those desires. And, and the Bible never justifies being attracted to someone of the same sex. But it has been true throughout history that sinners are never as bad as they could be were it not for God's common grace. And there is this thing called total depravity where uh, sinners absolutely do have feelings for those of the same sex. But that is never justified in the Bible. It is always condemned, no matter what culture and what time period, Old Testament and New Testament. So the question is not, what are my desires? The question is, has my heart been changed by the gospel? Has he made me a new creation? And if he's made me a new creature, then, then all things have become new. And he's placed within me the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which desires truth, desires to follow God's law. And the promise of the new covenant was the writing of God's law in the heart which was basically a way of saying that the law of God will be so internalized that you'll, you'll be like the psalmist that delights in the law of God, which means you'll reject homosexuality. You'll never try to justify it as a Christian, and you'll never condone it for another Christian or even a non-Christian. You don't ever condone it. So um, you have to fight against temptation, no matter what the temptation is. Yes, obviously, we can't help ourselves. Christ is the only one that can help us and rescue us from any sin, whether it's homosexuality or, or um, heterosexual adultery or immorality. Yeah, and I think I approach this a little bit differently in that sense because you went right for the homosexual issue, which is really the core part of the, the argument, the core thing they're trying to get to. They're trying to justify homosexual, homosexuality by saying, well, love is love. You, you can't help who you fall in love with. And I say... Yes, you can. You, you can because the, the core part of the argument that they fail to understand is they think love is an emotion, not an action. And there is an emotional element of, that we would think of with love, but love is an action. Love is something you choose to do. But our culture has gotten into this thing where it's all about feelings. Well, like kind of you were saying, we don't think anymore. We just feel what's right. And because I feel it's right, I get arrogant about it. And when you, when you actually present me with facts I get angry because you're you know don't confuse me with facts I have my feelings that is our culture and that's really what's the heart of this 
Love is a choice. It is an action. You choose to love someone. You choose not to love someone. Now, there is the emotional aspect to it, and there's the, 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 the issue of lust, but you know, I would argue that a lot of that what we see going on in our culture right now, and there's studies that sh- are supporting this, is the fact that practicing homosexuality is like the in thing to do so you can rebel against your parents. And so it is the way to show your rebellion, where it used to be many years ago drinking. You know, you'd go out and try to get drunk to, you know, then do drugs or get, you know, dress in goth or different ways people would try to be rebellious against the previous generation, against their parents. This is just this way. And everyone's experimenting with it. And there's people that aren't actually, because I have spoken to some, they, they, they do it because all their friends are doing it, but they don't really, they're not really buying into it. So the issue is there is a choice that people have when it comes to love. Saying, well, love is love is a way of just saying, well, I, I excuse it. I just, I have no control over it, uh, so it just is what it is. No, you could say, no, I'm not going to try to have, you know, lustful feelings towards someone I shouldn't. In fact, Scripture is really clear, you know, for this mother to the teenager, would the mother say to the teenager, well, it's okay to lust after someone else's spouse. I mean, it's, it, people certainly go, no, you shouldn't be telling people that. Yet, then you should be telling them, no, you shouldn't be lusting after someone of the same sex either. In fact, you shouldn't be lusting after anybody because they're not really talking love. They're talking lust in the question. That's the real issue. They're confusing those two and calling lust love. And so the reality is you shouldn't be lusting after anybody who's not your spouse. Anyone that you lust after, same sex or not, is a sin. But in this case, the issue is, well... They're excusing it by calling it love. It's not love. Love is an action. Love is a choice you make. You choose to love. And that, that would be the thing that I would, I would say to that. Let's get to one more question if we have some time. And th- this next question uh, came from Darren. He says, uh, Brother Andrew, I had a quick question. Since you have been a preacher for a while, I have been preaching uh, and teaching for a few years now, mostly Wednesday nights. But my question for you, uh, who have been in ministry for a long time, is this. Coming up two to three days before my sermon, every time I get really stressed and almost sick, worried about my use of God's Word, and that I teach it properly. Then for two days afterwards, I'm replaying every word in my head and worried about it if I used His Word wrongly or weakly. As a preacher and teacher, have you run into this? Is this normal? Other local pastors don't seem, and that's in all caps, don't, don't seem this way, but uh, they want to go out after and have fun. I would almost rather go sit, I don't know what word it is, to sit T-R-R-I-N, maybe that's some new texting language, I don't know, but uh, to sit at whatever and dark corner somewhere, LOL. So, Pastor Andrew Smith, what, what are your thoughts when it comes to, really, sermon prep, that, that before you get up and preach, what emotions do you go through? Do you stress out, like he's saying, do you stress out before about your proper use of God's Word, or do you stress out afterwards? What, what is it for you? Yeah, well, the first thing that I would say is that um, the, the way that God works in His church is that He calls and equips and set-aparts men who are able to do a task that, that He enables them to do. So preaching is, is not done in the power of the flesh. It's done in the power of the Spirit. And so you can't focus upon yourself. You can't focus upon, um, you know, too much upon yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you go un- in the pulpit unprepared. 
the greatest, for me, the greatest um, way to avoid any sort of anxiety regarding preaching is to be prepared. Because if you are a student of Scripture and you are confident that what you are saying is God's Word, there's a word for that, and that word is conviction. And when you have conviction in what you say, what you say will be said with authority, and the Spirit of God will use that and will actually overcome um, any of your own personal opinions or aberrant views or even dysfunctional ways of communicating. The Spirit of God can overcome all of that. So I would just tell Darren to to trust in the Lord, to be to be prayerful over his sermon, to be prepared with his sermon, to leave it in the Lord's hands, and to understand that you're never going to preach a perfect sermon, but the Lord is not requiring you to do that. He requires you to be faithful. And if you're preaching rightly, people aren't going to be thinking about you so much, the messenger, but they're going to be thinking about the message and and the powerful uh, truth that is brought to bear upon God's people by the Spirit of God that indwells His people and helps overcome um, those um, deficiencies, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, so I would just tell Darren to be encouraged that if, if he knows he's called and he knows that this is the way God e- equips his people, uh, uh, the, the, the church is equipped through pastor teachers, Ephesians chapter 4, then just rest in that. Trust in that, work hard, and the Lord will use you in ways that you, you probably won't be able to gauge in this lifetime, um, but it's not all about you. It's, 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 it's about your faithfulness to the Lord with the gifts he's given you and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that will empower the preaching of the Word. Yeah, I mean, I, I shared this last time when we recorded this, right? So I, I do get nervous when I get up because I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. You're right that the more preparation you do, you don't have as much of that because if you if you studied it out and you know, okay, I've really double-checked all my work. However, it is something that, for me, it my blood pressure or my, my uh, heart rate goes up. Uh, I, do, I do think about it because, because I don't want to be wrong. So I understand what he's saying with that aspect of it. I don't want to take lightly when I'm going to stand up before God's people because if I instruct them wrong, they're going to go off that instruction. And I would hate to say this is the interpretation of God's word and be wrong with that. But you're right. The way to, to combat that is study more. The more you study, the less you're going to be thinking that you did something wrong. But you also need to preach to one. It, it's to God who we're really preaching to. Because God could even use our, our words that may, we may say wrong. And he can still use it to cause someone to study the scriptures and come to, to a right conclusion. So God can use that. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. Many people don't think through it. You, know, you think of Joseph, who his brothers you know, threw him in, into to a pit and sold him as a slave, and, and they're all worried, you know, what are we going to do? And he says, am I God? You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. God could take the evil you did, and he could turn it around and use it for his good. So, so Darren shouldn't worry about, what if I say something wrong? God can use that. We, we need to be faithful. It is something that we don't take lightly. I mean, I, I, it does drive me crazy when you have these guys who are just going to st- walk up to a pulpit with no study. You know, I, I, I fear for them, mm-hmm. you know, because they're going to stand before God and be, he's, oh, oh, you just thought my word was something you could just flip open and just read it and just wing it? No. You know, the, the reality is, is if you're putting the study in now, he says, no, one, these others don't seem to do it. Well, the reality is, if you watch me preach, no one knows how nervous I get. No one sees that. You're not going to see my heart race, racing. 
Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I think everyone struggles with some level of anxiety when it comes to preaching because you are to have a reverential fear of God. Uh, for me, the anxiety and the wrestling is in the study during the week. So I feel like I go through six days of of anxiety, of wrestling with the text and, and praying and all of those things, wanting to be 100% certain that what I'm preparing is accurate. But on Sunday, it's almost like I, I, I'm, I've got such pent-up energy, um, physical and emotional, that as soon as I open my mouth, it is a huge relief. Because I feel like now I'm prepared, I'm ready to speak, and I just need to trust the Lord and let it fly. And so for me, um, I remember, Andrew, the first time that I preached. And, of course, I was nervous. I was I was scared to death. Um, I was a teenager. And um, the elders had encouraged me to, to put together a message. So I did. Um, but within two or three minutes of speaking, I felt more comfortable than I had ever felt doing anything in my life. Now, how can a teenager stand before a, co- a full congregation of people that are much older than him, that that, have, that has known him for a number of years, and not, not be nervous? Well, it's only because I knew, number one, that I was prepared in that moment. And I do think there is a level, if you've been called to the ministry, um, you know it's the task that you've been called to do, and there's really nothing else you can do. So you just sort of accept that, and you roll with the punches. And so there's a level of comfort and comfortability. I would almost be the opposite of Darren, that after a sermon is when I'm the most relaxed, because I know that I've done the job. It doesn't mean I've done it perfectly, but, but I've given, I've left everything on the field everything. So I can't control what the results are, but I trust God's gracious, and I trust that he'll use what was said. Um, And there are those times where you sort of beat yourself up over, I shouldn't have said it that way, and yeah, you have those moments, but it doesn't make it doesn't debilitate me. In fact, it motivates me. You know, the next time I stand in the pulpit, I will not say that, and I I will do, I I won't do that next time. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things, the first time i preached i was 12 years old so uh, and i had to preach in hebrew so be be glad in the synagogue yes (laughs) but but i think that one of the things is that for me at least preaching every sunday i don't i can't just study for the one week on a sermon because there's just sometimes way too much that is in it as of right now i am working on six sermons at all at different stages but I'm reading through and that helps with getting the context but they're all at different stages of development and the one that I'm going to preach the next Sunday is the one that I'm going to be really having a lot more study into it but I agree with you by the time Sunday comes soon as I I'm preaching I just it's like a weight off my shoulders because this you know my case has not just really been one week but I've been wrestling with it for weeks at different levels and this that one week I'm wrestling with it the most and so on Sunday, the reason I'm, I'm most relaxed, like you're saying, afterwards is because it's been delivered. Some people, people ask, well, is your sermon ready? And I've always said, there's no sermon that's ready until it's preached. And even then, I work on the sermon afterwards. Even then, I'll be like, you know, I have some things that came to my mind while I was preaching it. or so I'm like, Okay, let me, the, like, as you know, the message that I preached here today was, different, was the same as the message I preached at my church last week. However, it was also different. There were some different illustrations I used. There was actually some different things that I added in after last week of doing some study. I, I was like, oh, you know what? I forgot to add this. I forgot that. You brought up the passage that I, from what I was preaching out of a different passage in Nehemiah 5, 
Well, that's going into the sermon notes for the next time. If I ever preach the same text again, that's going to go in there. So there is where you're going to you're going to continue to add as you continue studying. So so I'm like studying through different stages, but even after I preach it, I'm still going back and and noting some things. There's some things that I'll be like, oh, as I'm studying the next week, I'm like, hey, you know what? I should have put that into this week's. Yeah. No, I um. There have been times that this has not been the norm, so I, I want to be clear on this. But there have been times where you know you're reading through all these commentaries for sermon preparation, and none of the commentaries agree. They're all in disagreement, and you've got five or six interpretations when you narrow it down, nuanced from about 25 different positions, and you have all of that in your notes. You go over it and you determine which interpretation you think is the best, and then you stand in the pulpit, and this has happened to me where I'm convinced of one interpretation, and I stand in the pulpit as I'm going through each position, I guess I'm maybe talking, obviously I'm talking out loud, and maybe thinking through it in a way that I hadn't thought through it before. But then there's the the Spirit of God that is at work that I truly believe will nudge you in in the correct direction. I don't mean that in any, in any weird charismatic way, but I just, I believe in God using preaching, spirit-filled preaching. And there have been times I have changed my position as I'm explaining the different interpretations. Now, it's nothing that, that, that makes me a heretic. It's nothing that puts me out of the realm of orthodoxy. Um, and in the cases that I'm speaking about, it's, um, it doesn't change any major doctrine. But to me, those are, those are lessons that, yes, you should be prepared. Yes, you should work your hardest. Yes, you should know and be convinced when you get in the pulpit what you're going to say and that it's accurate. But even then, the sermon, as you said, Andrew, is not complete. The Spirit of God is in control of this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a thing where I think this is why I tend to talk through my sermons with my wife, which she, which she has said, will you stop doing that? Because on Sunday, I already know your whole sermon. <laughs> like, I want, to be, I want to hear it for the first time on Sunday, you know. But... But the thing that we end up seeing with that is there is a level of preparation that someone needs to do that's going to ease some of his stress. And some of it is once it's delivered, you keep working on it. But if you're so worried about what the reception from the congregation is going to be, you have to remind yourself you're preaching for Christ. And that's what you do. You know, I, I shared last time with this. I, I knew a guy that when he his first pastor, he was he was preaching and he was worried about the audience. His pastor made him preach in a cemetery with no one there. Preach to the dead. And he'd make him do it on a Saturday night before preaching it on Sunday. And he did it for a couple of times. And he's like, why are you having me do this? Because that's who you have to... If you can preach to them, the dead, and you're not worried, don't worry about the people here. You're preaching for the, for the sake of getting accurate God's word. And you're leaving the results in God's hand. That actually sounds familiar to other things, right? We preach the gospel. We don't change their hearts. We preach the gospel and we leave the results in God's hands. That's, that's what we do. And so Darren, I would say that if you're... If you're worrying too much, it could be an issue. But a lot of what it is, is a lot of that is resolved in the study. Now, I think maybe what's for some people, it sounds like Darren may not be preaching week in and week out, and that that makes it harder. For some guys, it's even harder because they're they're preaching every Sunday, but they're also working a full-time job or a part-time job, and they don't have the time to devote as much time in. you know, some people like to do this thing called sleep. I don't get that. I I I just don't understand why you waste that time of the day. But... The reality is not everyone has as much time to put in. If, if, if someone like Darren is not preaching every week, you want to start months ahead. When I, when I do some of the conferences, I remember doing an apologetics cruise. I had like 10 messages to deliver in seven days. 
or when I went to the Philippines and I had, I think it was 14 or 15 messages to preach in 10 days. You are going to have to prepare them months ahead of time. You can't just do that in one week. And so if you know you're going to be preaching months ahead of time, you start that study. And the more you can put into the study, the more prepared you're going to be. And I'm like you, by the time I get to a pulpit, I have, it's like a fire hose being released. And it's actually, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to hold back on. Because I typically come to the pulpit with like five hours worth of material. And... I can't do that. So so you have to hold it back, and it's a matter of going, okay, what is the important things to communicate to the audience? But I have this wealth of study. Now, I think what some people struggle with, and maybe Darren is struggling with this. I know I struggled with it the first time preaching, is that you want to get everything out there. You want to get everything you studied out there. I remember the first time a friend of mine had me preach at his church. I still don't know exactly how long I preached. Everyone said it was a great message. It was just long. I don't exactly know how long, but it was back with the cassette tapes. If you remember those, it was a 92-minute cassette tape, so you know, when it gets to one side, it flips. All I know is I did go flipped twice, which means I went over 92 minutes. <laughs> but I don't know how much over 92 minutes. But because I thought I had to get everything that I studied out. And I eventually learned I don't have to do that. Everyone doesn't have to know everything I studied. I, I bring the, the, the treasure the, from the top, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop to the, to the congregation. And the rest maybe I'll bring up another time. There will be other opportunities. Now, when you're preaching week by week or if you're doing a series, like if he's preaching regularly once a month on Wednesdays, then you can bring everything and just carry it over to the next week. And just do smaller portions. Or do you could deal with the same text and deal with it in a series and bring up different aspects if you, if you really feel compelled to bring all of it. But I think a, a lot of guys, when they're starting out, they have that nervousness. They want to bring everything that they studied out. And, and that's just not necessary. So uh, that's about all the questions we're going to be able to get to today. Now, with, uh, with us folks, if you want to have your questions answered, you want to have questions that you'd like us to address, just email us, info at strivingforeternity.org, info at strivingforeternity.org. And before we close out, I'll also let you know that we've opened up the Israel trip again. Because of COVID, some people uh, had to drop when we had to switch the dates. And so we're going to be going the last week of October, first week of November. It will be the speakers at Striving for Eternity, Dr. Svestro and myself. And then it will be Justin Peters joining us. So if you want to join us, go to IsraelTour2021.com. That's Israel Tour. 2021.com. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We're going for two weeks. It's a little bit longer than many. We're going to see a lot of good things. We're also going to be, when you look at the price, it's going to include all of your hotels, very nice hotels that we're staying at. Your The bus, it, if you fly out of New York, it's going to include your airfare. It includes your breakfast and your dinners and one lunch. If you're not going to fly out of New York, there's a cheaper price if you do just the land portion and you have to meet us in Israel. And we're going to have devotions uh, by Justin Peters, myself, Dr. Svestro, and some others who will be there. So every day you're going to be just sitting in, in the land where you read about from the scriptures, and we're going to help you to see the the terrain and the events that happen at the at these sites to help you understand your scriptures even better now pastor andrew smith you said you started podcasting again let folks know where they can hear your podcast how they can subscribe to it sure yeah the name of the podcast is today in church history or his story h-i-s hyphen s-t-o-r-y it's on apple itunes 
Um, but all of the podcasts are also archived on PastorAndrewSmith.com. That's because you, 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 like Justin Peters, have very a lot of originality. You know, JustinPeters.org, PastorAndrewSmith.com. I mean, you guys would win awards for creativity, I'm telling you. Right. So, so, folks, we'll, we are going to be taking the rest of December off. We're not going to be having any more episodes this month. Uh, we're going to start up again in the new year. Some of you are saying 2020 is over. Oh, thank God, this has been a horrible year. Well, if you listen to my, some of my other podcasts on Theology Throwdown, that is the podcast that all the Christian Podcast Community members do, we're going to be talking in early January about the blessings of 2020. People don't think about that. We're all thinking about all the negatives. But there's many good things that came out, even of COVID and these lockdowns. There's a lot of things we can look to and see how God was working in our lives. So maybe something you want to check out. Go check out Theology Throwdown. Throwdown's two words, Theology Throwdown. Uh, if you really want, check out the December episode of that where we talked about common Christian cliches. And we took apart many things that some people think are in the Bible, but they ain't anywhere in the Bible. And some things that are in the Bible, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And so that was a fun episode. We had a lot of different uh, podcasters from the community that were joining in. So check that one out. And we're glad you're listening. Typically, I'd ask Bud, what's up? And he'd say, he, or I'd say, you know what, Bud? And he'd say, what? And i say, that's a wrap. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.